Welcome to the third episode of the new series, The Ten Lost Tribes in Jewish Consciousness, here on Svarim Chatter, and I'm Nachi Weinstein. In this episode of the series, we discuss one of the ever-present mysteries in the, in the Lost Tribes legend, the legendary Sambation River. Where is the river? Do the Lost Tribes live beyond it or next to it? Do the Bremaisha live there? Others. Does the river run all week and rest on Shabbos? Or does it rest all week and run only on Shabbos? Is it a river of water? Or perhaps it's a river of rocks or sand? And many other aspects of this river. All this discussed in the episode and more. The corporate sponsor of this series is, as always, Gluck Plumbing. For all your service needs, big or small in New Jersey, with a full service division from boiler changeouts, main sewer line snakeouts, cameraing main lines to a simple faucet leak, Gluck Plumbing Service Division has you covered. Give them a call, 732-523-1836, extension 1. And thank you to them again for sponsoring this third series here on Swarm Chatter. To sponsor an individual episode of this series, please email me, svarmchatter at gmail.com. Or if you're on the WhatsApp community chat, you can directly message me as well. Uh, and as I just mentioned, there is now a WhatsApp community, a WhatsApp chat. You can uh, join that via the link in the show's notes. Uh, there's an admin-only one where I post new episodes of the series, new Svarim, new books. And there's also two connected chats where there's uh, discussion. Also, there is now a Swarm Chatter Substack, a link to that, uh, which is free, but there is a subscriber option if you like to subscribe monthly or yearly. I appreciate it, and there's going to be there is there will be some bonus content for those that subscribe that way. Um, there's general posts, book reviews, things, guest essays, things like that, as well as um, podcast you know, posts related to the podcast series. Um, and if you would like to write for there and submit anything, you can do so by emailing me also svarmchatter at gmail.com. To sponsor an episode or support the podcast generally, please email me svarmchatter at gmail.com or see the links and information in the show's notes below. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform. And if you use Apple Podcasts, if you would um, rate and review it there, write a review is very much appreciated and very helpful to the podcast and with that enjoy and one one more thing before i, I would want to want to mention uh usher tester of control a creative and thank you to him for his help in swarm chatter we overhaul there's a new logo new logo new logo for this series and so and also for the music for this series i do want to thank him here uh publicly so with that enjoy this episode about the Sambation River and the Hi everyone, Ten Lost Tribes welcome series. to another edition of the Swarm Chatter Podcast and another episode on the ongoing series on the Ten Lost Tribes in Jewish Consciousness. Uh, on this episode of the series, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Daniel Stein Koken, who is a scholar who specializes in Jewish and Christian cultural exchange in the medieval and early modern period, and who is currently affiliated with Arizona State University. And we'll be discussing the Sambation River, the uh, famous uh, river, Sambation, and we'll be discussing, you know, in, in you know, as very much as it relates to this, to the lost tribes, and where it is, and what it is, and where the sources come from, and who's behind it, who lives next to it, and all those many, many more things. So thank you uh, for joining me. Oh, no, I'm delighted to be here to discuss Judaism's great uh, contribution to the world of mythical waterways. So let's sort of tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, so as you heard, my name is Daniel Stein Koken. I grew up in uh, Los Angeles, lived in a lot of places 
Maybe that has something to do with my interest in the Lost Tribes, although I've never, I've never moved in search of them, but I have lived in Chicago, in Boston, New Haven, Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, Florence, Italy, Berlin. Uh, I now currently live in Phoenix, Arizona, and I think I probably left a place or two out. Uh, I see myself as an cultural and intellectual historian, though I've had something of an unusual, I would say, odyssey. You could almost sort of say that my professional life, I've been sort of coursing down a river that takes me to different places. I started out in college, University of Chicago, doing classical philology, so Latin and Greek. Then I went to graduate school to study Renaissance intellectual history, Renaissance humanism. I was interested, remain interested in the classical tradition, sort of the legacy of uh, the Greco-Roman world. But then somehow the my Jewish identity began to sort of insert itself more and more into my academic interests. And that led me to write about Christian Hebraism for my doctorate. Uh, so that is Christian scholars in the Renaissance who studied the Hebrew language and Jewish sources, and really just the whole place of the Hebrew language and Jewish Christian relations. And that remains something that I work on and that I'm very, uh, a topic that is very dear to my heart and, and mind. Uh, but then increasingly, I find myself working on Jewish topics. And I would say that the work that I, tr that I do or that I try to do is characterized by really sort of two, two tendencies that in some ways are conflicting, but in some ways reinforce one another. So the first I would describe as macro textuality. I really love taking particular cultural tropes or traditions and then tracing them across time and space and elucidating how changing cultural conditions impact how exactly they're understood, what, what, is, what is added to these traditions, what, what disappears, and that whole process of sort of figuring this out across time. I really enjoy and I find uh, I derive a lot of satisfaction from bringing out the, the meaning uh, that these motifs have. And that, that's very relevant for what we're talking about today. And the other tendency I would describe as microtextuality. That is, I really love to do very, very focused textual work. And especially, I love just sort of homing in on a sentence or two uh, that often, it seems to me at least, has been sort of overlooked in the literature that's out there. Oftentimes because it just says something really strange that it's hard to really make sense of. But then I like to try to really just sort of hover over it for as long as it takes to really make some sense out of it. And then to use that sentence or two as a point of entry, a kind of portal into the world behind that particular text or collection of texts. Um, and, and then again, to bring out the cultural meaning that's, that's encoded in something that, again, at first glance just seems very strange or impossible to, 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 to understand to make sense of. So that, that's sort of what I, what I like to do. Uh, and I really love the working in areas of Jewish Christian exchange because I love just seeing how the traditions, the ideas really bounce off one another. And you can really sort of get a sense of this just fascinating dialogue taking place, I mean, obviously over, over millennia at this point, but in, when you're dealing with particular tropes, say sort of the significance of Rome and Jewish culture, or say the significance of the Sabbation, or another topic that I've worked on is uh, attitudes towards left and right, specifically the discourse surrounding the fact that Hebrew was written from right to left, whereas Latin and other Western languages are from left to right. Believe it or not, there are a lot of sources in the medieval and early modern periods that are trying to grapple with you know, what is the significance of this? What does it mean that Jews write going to the left and so forth? Um, 
a piece that's about to come out deals with uh, Benjamin of Tudela, the great 12th century Jewish traveler's description of Rome, and specifically a very strange tradition that he reports, uh, according to which the palace of Titus in Rome is located outside of the city. Why? Because the Senate would not let him come back to the city after conquering Jerusalem because he took too long to do so. Very strange statement. And trying to figure that out, I ended up writing about 42,000 words. So that's that's an example of sort of microtextuality, kind of total history or investigation of a particular puzzling thing in a text and just take it as far as one can take it, take it as, you know, as, as long as one can, uh, extract as much meaning as possible from it. So, yeah. Now, what I'm about. yeah. Now let's talk about the, the Sambatian and the Ten Lost Tribes. I mean, Sambatian, you have a number of articles about, and uh, the Ten Lost Tribes as well. You're you're working on things. So I don't know which one came first. So because they are they are linked, but they are separate as well. So I'll let you you know you can talk about a bit about first of all, how did you become interested in the topic, and which one kind of came first? Yeah, I, I love how you phrase it. What came first, the tribes or the or the river, the chicken or the egg? Uh, so. So definitely the tribes came first in, in this case. And really, I, this is one of these interests that have fascinations that I really have had going back even into childhood. I mean, I just, I remember in elementary school, I was just interested in the rulers, dynasties, palaces, legends uh, of ancient rulers. I remember reading it. There was this book uh, in Hebrew school called Legends of King Solomon I did, that I just kept checking out and rereading because I just loved all these stories about Solomon. And I think the the tribe sort of just sort of latched onto that interest. And I think really what was sort of feeding that as I look back on it was this sense of, you know, what are my, or this question, what are my real roots? Um, I mean, grew up in a Jewish family, you know, very typical American, you know, Eastern European background, but we know very, very little about our family history, including really where our name Kokin comes from. We're not Kohanim, so you know it's not related to Kohen, or if it is, it's incidental. Uh, so, and I think just sort of this fascination for these ancient rulers and dynasties and and the tribes of Israel, it just sort of it allowed me to latch on to something ancient and old and venerable that, in a way, substituted for a, a family history that I didn't really have so much. Uh, and I'll just sort of on the same line, I remember when I first encountered the Hasmonean dynasties rulers, I mean, now I know that they, they weren't really much to write home about most of them. Uh, but I was just fascinated by these names, you know, Alexander Yanai, John Hyrcanus, Salome Alexandra. And actually, that actually proved to be sort of productive because uh, our second daughter is, is named Salome. She was born during Hanukkah, and I was sort of inspired by uh, uh by that coincidence and then all the lovely uh, rabbinic traditions surrounding her reign uh, and specifically all the rain that fell in it. And I just love the sound of the name. So anyway, getting a little bit off topic there. So back to the Sambadion and the tribe. So, so as I, so I got, so I was just interested, especially in sort of where the legend came from of the tribes and specifically a point that it always sort of bothered me, this notion of there being 10 lost tribes, which we always talk about, but doesn't really make sense from a geographical perspective. Maybe this is coming up uh, elsewhere in the series that you're working on right now, because the, you know, if we think about the Southern kingdom as having been comprised of Judah and Benjamin, uh, then there only really are nine tribes in the North, unless we include Levi, but of course, Levi was also present in Judah and Benjamin. So, uh, you know, there's the tribe of Simeon or Shimon, who, if you look at all the sort of you know schema schema of where the tribes were located, was located actually 
sort of in a way in the context of the territory of Judah. So there really weren't, so it's actually complicated to speak about 10 lost tribes. And so I was interested in trying to puzzle out how the idea of 10 lost tribes actually emerged from a literary, historical, you know, whatever perspective you want to look at. I ended up writing a whole long draft about that, which I haven't even published. But in the context of that, uh, that investigation took me to sort of all the different ancient authors and what they say about the tribes. And that brought me to a figure who, in the meantime, has become, I would almost sort of say, a good friend, or at least from a research perspective, because he seems to pop up in so much of what I do, namely Josephus, the great uh, ancient Jewish historian, uh, who has... uh, there's actually a lot of fascinating stuff about the tribes and the specific tradition of 10. We won't go into that here, but uh, specifically, uh, I, you know, Tox also is one of our earliest sources, the second earliest, uh, to my understanding, for the notion of the sabbatical river. And it was there that I then sort of noticed that, uh, you know, that, that he is writing around the same time as uh, the Roman writer uh, and scientist polymath Pliny uh, the Elder, who in his natural history also makes reference to a river that, uh, to a Shomer Shabbat river. And, um, and, but as we'll get into in just a moment, the, the accounts are actually quite different and, and opposing on, on, on numerous fronts, most prominently in the fact that according to Pliny, the river flows six days and runs dry every Shabbat, whereas for Josephus, the river is actually dry during the week and flows profusely on Shabbat. So uh, that contrast intrigued me. And really, I would say there were sort of two things that I, so I I wrote, I spent some time in the context of this tribes piece trying to make sense of that. And that led actually ultimately to my, to my main uh, Sabbatian article from uh, Association for Jewish Studies Review, about 10 years ago. We'll talk more in just a second about that. But there were really two things that I noticed or that I learned from engaging with Josephus on the question of the tribes. So first of all, this this contrast with Pliny just made me appreciate that, you know, I think generally when we think about the the Sambat Yonia, we think, okay, there's this river that sort of, you know, keeps Shabbat, that is sort of flowing during the week, is dry. And of course, you know, the the 10 lost tribes live you know, on the other far side of it or live, you know, sort of nearby it in some sense. And and I think that's sort of the general picture that we have of the legend. But encountering Josephus and Pliny, I saw, well, actually, the tribes aren't actually referenced at all uh, with regard to them. Um, and they actually disagree quite, you know, on pretty much everything about this river, except that it is a river and that it in some way, its behavior, its flow somehow is uh, connected with uh the rhythm of the week and, and, and the Sabbath. And that made me realize, oh, there's actually like, it's not just a, a sort of a legend that's a set piece. There's actually, there actually are disagreements. There's actually, you know, the things to explore and figure out about, you know, how people are, are describing this. And then the other thing is that, so Josephus refers to this sabbatical river in his uh, Belem Judaicum, in his Jewish war, book seven, shortly after the destruction of, of the temple in Jerusalem. And then it's in uh, book 11 of his Jewish Antiquities, which is a work that he wrote several decades later, which is a kind of retelling of the Bible and all of Jewish history. And the context there of describing the the exile of the Jews, he talks about how, all right, and so uh, basically the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin are, you know, basically all throughout the sort of Mediterranean sort of known world. And then past the Euphrates River, that's where 
that's where the the ten lost you know the ten tribes are located and so then I realized, oh well, you know he connects the tribes with the Euphrates, not with the sabbatical river, and when he talks about the sabbatical river, he's not talking about any population that lives in particular that lives near or past it, and that made me realize actually what we tend to think of as a kind of set piece, uh, you know the legend of the Sabbatun and the ten lost tribes seem actually originally to have been two very different stories that at a certain point crossed one another. And that made me realize that there's actually, there's actually, well, both of these observations, this the disagreement between Josephus and Pliny, and then this discrepancy or this, uh, this contrast in Josephus between where he talks about the tribes and where he talks about the sabbatical river made me realize there's actually a story to be told here. Uh, it's not a set piece. It's not a set legend. It's a legend that evolves over time that takes on new meaning. And in fact, uh, we're dealing with a, that somehow these two legends actually sort of got uh, bound up with one another. So that then raised the question for me, well, when, why, and how did that happen? And what does it mean that it happened? So, and that really got me just interested in in tracing the the whole history of the of the Sabbation legend, because it made me realize that, you know, probably, in, and I think it's true, in every period where you encounter it, it's, it's doing something somewhat differently. It's being described in somewhat different terms. Uh, it's encountering somewhat different difficulties. It reflects Jewish-Christian relations in a somewhat different way. It reflects how Jews think about the Sabbath and, by extension, then about the, you know, the, the world of Jewish law, of Jewish observance, somewhat differently. It reflects how Jews think about time and keeping time somewhat differently. So, sorry, I've probably gone on, speaking of time, I've probably gone on too long there, but that sort of gets you, uh, gives you a sense of how I got interested in this and where it's taken me. Um, and that led, actually, um, about a decade ago, my, my colleague uh, Moti Benelach and I, we organized a conference on the Sabbat Yon that took place at Hebrew University in Yad Ben Svi in Israel. Um, and it sort of ebbs and flows, but, but it remains very much something that I'm interested in. So I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk about it today. As yeah, and with Mati, there's an episode on this series, whether that'll air before this episode or after, but there's an episode with him as well. Uh, now, now, so, I mean, you really give a nice overview of it. I mean, it's it's a river where, you know, growing up, I always, you know, always heard of it and I heard of it one way. But then, like you say, first you look in those, you know, Josephus and plenty of the classical sources and you're seeing one says it ran the whole week and stopped on Shabbos, one says vice versa. And then you look another, you look in Midrashim, you look in Medrash Tanchuma, you look in, uh, in, in, in Medrash, um, um, the uh, Agadat of Shemais, you look in Brazier's Rabbi, there's all over the place, all of them and, and they all have different ways. Some of them it says it was water, some it was rocks, some it was, it was sand, it was flowed different ways. It's, it moves around, it's in different places, like you yeah. said. Or nowhere sometimes. Were the, the 10 tribes on the other side of it? Were they next to it? Where was it the Pene Moisha? It's like it becomes yeah. like there's so much associated. And like you said, it's not a set thing at all. We're going to, you know, hopefully get into that a little bit here. So um, let's start off. I mean, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, I, I guess you mentioned the general parameters already. We kind of threw it out there so we can, you know, kind of, I mean, where, where's the origins of the river? Where do we see it first? Uh, yeah. So in, in the article that I referred to before, I, I called it toward the source of the Sambatyon because I was, you know, punning on where rivers come from, but also where legends come from. I wanted to try to get as close as I could to to where this legend emerged. And one of the main points that I make there, so this goes back to what I was saying about Josephus and Pliny. So noticing how, how opposed uh, their respective accounts were. And it's not just that Pliny has the river dry on Shabbat and Josephus has the river flowing on Shabbat, but it's also 
Pliny has the river located in Judea, he says. In Judea, there's a river that runs dry every, every Shabbat, uh, every Sabbath. Josephus actually has it in Lebanon, flowing from Lebanon into Syria. Um, just, uh, Pliny talks, you know, has it flowing during the week and then dry on the Sabbath. Josephus starts by, by having it actually flow on the Sabbath, run dry during the week, and then flow again on the Sabbath. Pliny doesn't actually tell you where specifically it is or where, you know, where it starts or where it ends in Judea. It's just there. Josephus actually has it very distinctly run from one city to another city. So noticing all these things, I, it became clear to me that there must be some kind of relationship between these two sources. It's not, can't simply be coincidence that they're reporting things so differently. It can't be that, you know, that somebody just, like, wasn't thinking straight when they wrote and got it wrong. There must be like a real connection here. Uh, and then that impression was only strengthened when I realized, well, actually, jo Josephus and Pliny were both in Rome in the years after uh, after the Great Revolt. They were both uh, subjects of, of Flavian patronage, that is the, the Flavian dynasty, you know, the, the Emperor Vespasian, Titus, and then the mission. They were being patronized. They were receiving support for their, for their scholarship from them. Uh, so... Uh, it just made sense that these would be sort of conjoined. And it just seemed also clear from when we know Pliny's Natural History was published, 77, I believe, uh, and when we know or think we know that uh, the book seven of Josephus' Jewish War was written, that Pliny came first and Josephus is responding to, to him. And that made sense also just Pliny is just sort of a one sentence that appears in a particularly sort of interesting context in the in his natural history. Josephus really takes a little bit more time to sort of celebrate this uh, the, 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 this river, uh, and so that led me to the insight, or at least the argument that I make in, in my piece, which is that the idea of the sabbatical river really is originally a Roman idea, that it's not something that Jews came up with, it's something that, that Romans actually came up with, and that it actually reflected, uh, or can be placed in dialogue, no, I would say really reflected, it grows out of a sort of a piece uh, uh, of general Roman critique of the idea of Shabbat. And we have a whole host of Roman texts in this period of the first century, the Common Era, that you know that that criticize uh, Shabbat for various reasons. You know that the Jews they waste to give away you know one seventh of their life to you know to to doing nothing, to sloth and indolence. Um, you know that all kinds of critical approaches to the Sabbath. You know the Romans critique the Jews for not fighting on the Sabbath and for you know the law political losses that that the military defeats that that led to in Jewish history and so forth. So the very negative. Roman attitude toward the Sabbath, which I think feeds into this idea that, oh, here's a river that, you know, that there's a river in Judea that basically dries out uh, every Sabbath. It basically, it's sort of, in a way, the river is sort of telling the story of the Jews, um, you know, and that specifically, I, I would suggest that the, the legend, this notion emerged during the Great Revolt or in the aftermath of the Great Revolt. Here you have this people that basically, you know, they've been crushed, uh, you know, in Judea. And so this notion of a river that basically sort of, you know, dries out every week in a way sort of tells the story of the Jews that, you know, they have sort of these periods where they're sort of flowing, but then, you know, it basically leads to to a destruction. And precisely the context in which the Pliny's passage appears in his natural history, it's, just, it's, it's a context about dangerous waters, poisonous waters. It's right after actually a reference to this one Roman figure who encountered a spring and then died 
uh, like seven days later and so forth. So it's all very, it's all very suggestive how it's, uh, how it's presented there. So that's, that's where I see it coming from. And so then I see Josephus as in a sense, you know, wanting to respond to this and wanting to actually tell a very different story about the river. Uh, and then the rabbinic texts, all uh, rabbinic authors also want to tell a very different story about this river, but everyone is, they're all responding to something that initially, in my contention, grows out of Roman culture. And this also makes sense because we, and we classicists have talked about this, uh, rivers in various, including in Pliny, and but in other contexts, also in classical literature, they tend to, they're not just geographical, geographical you know, phenomena or entities, but they they're often used to tell a kind of story. And we actually see that in, elsewhere in Pliny's natural history, in the context of his re- description of, of Judea in general, he talks about, you know, the Jordan River, uh, how it's this, you know, this river of life, this flourishing river that then, that basically, where does it end up? It ends up basically in the Dead Sea, in this, in this, in this body of water that basically symbolizes, you know, death and inhospitality inhospitality and uh, or is inhospitable or poisonous uh, and so forth. And that for him is, again, a sort of, it's in a way telling the story of this province that the Romans had, you know, had just crushed and, and destroyed. So, so I see Josephus also is very much re- trying to engage with this sort of Roman use of, of rivers, uh, uh, again, not just as geographical entities, but also as, as sort of platforms for telling a particular story about a particular place. So already in that first time, I mean, and, and like you mentioned, in many of the rabbinic sources, I mean, it comes all over Midrashim, it's all over Chazal, talk about it, the Zimbatian as well, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But, um, you know, already right there, what you were just saying, you already see, does it flow the whole week, stop on Shabbos, or vice versa? And, you know, it, it already there starts being changes about water and the sand and rocks, and it's, it, it's changing, and also where it's located. Um, you know, mo- later on, it gets associated with the Ten Lost Tribes, it's obviously not going to be situated in Eretz Yisrael, in the land of Israel, it becomes situated elsewhere. When do all these different shifts, I mean, some have started at the beginning, when do we start seeing these different shifts in its geographical location, its, you know, how it runs, what it contains, when do we kind of see that uh, occurring? Really from the very beginning. Uh, I mean, uh, so again, Pliny, he places the river in Judea, but in a very vague, nowhere in particular in Judea. Uh, Josephus, as I said before, he has the river actually running between these two uh, cities in Lebanon, one in Lebanon, one in Syria. Just to resume where I was, so uh, Josephus has it flowing between the city Archaea and then, which is, and then Raphanea. So the first is in Lebanon, today's Lebanon. The second, Raphanea, is in today's Syria. And what's interesting is he notes that Archaea, he notes, located in Agrippa's kingdom. This is referring to actually a Jewish a figure who had a sort of very small sort of kingdom or you know, polity in the north of the land, just to the north of the land of Israel. So there's actually, I actually argue in my piece that that the story that Josephus's Sambatyon or sabbatical river is, is, is telling is in a way this move from a place of Jewish sovereignty to a, di- to a diaspora existence. Um, and that the notion that it, you know, every seven days runs copi- full of copious water again is in a way reflecting his anticipation, his confidence, his faith that the fortunes of Jewish history, they have at times, but they will again in the future flow mightily. But to, to get specifically to your question, so already there in our very earliest two sources, we have a real shift um, in terms of where the river is located. 
But we have also a lot of sources that are not actually specifically concerned with where the river is located. And that's actually the case with the earliest, what I regard as the earliest, earliest stratum of rabbinic uh, teachings about the river, this, uh, uh, this, this encounter, this conversation between Rabbi Kiva and, and, and Turnus Rufus, um, they, they actually have, uh, it's the, the role of the, of the, of the, of the Sambatyon is simply to prove the legitimacy of the idea of Shabbat. Nahar Sambatyon Yochiach, the river Sambatyon will prove uh, that there is, you know, such a thing as Shabbat, that it is, uh, that it has a sort of basis. Uh, but those sources are actually never, never interested in, in clarifying where exactly the river is located. Then as we head in uh, later in time, we do, we start to see some indications as to where it is, but really what, what, what happens is it, it comes to be located somewhere at the edge of the known world. And it's, I haven't been so interested specifically. I mean, there are different sources that say different things. There's one Muslim geographer in the Middle Ages who actually places the Sand River, uh, as he calls it, in, in Spain. Uh, but typically, I would say the sense is that it's located somewhere off to the east. And most of the sources that I've explored have not been particularly interested in saying exactly where it is. But what they, although they do sometimes give indications. So, for example, um, one interesting source is Avaria uh, of Bartanura, uh, writing in the late 15th century, who reports that he uh, learned from, that he heard from, from Muslim traders, actually, that it's located, that it's located uh, basically in the near, well, if you're starting in Yemen, it's, it's located about a 50 days walk into, into the desert. Um, so on the one hand, it's fascinating because that offers a kind of precision 50 days walk. But of course, 50 days, I mean, it's a, it's a very sort of sabbatical, you know, it's sort of, it's basically seven times seven. So it's sort of a fascinating notion that to get to the sabbatical river, you need to basically, you know, you need to basically walk, you know, sort of seven times seven. We're doing this interview in the Omer period between Pesach and Shavuot. So that's sort of, you know, uh, so it's interesting to think about, you know, place it in dialogue with, you know, the, the two sort of notions of county to 50 uh, in dialogue with one another. Uh, so, but it, the river ends up sort of, you know, somewhere, somewhere far, far away, basically at the edge of the world. And that's, and that's sort of where it, where it stays, I would say, even down to the, to the present, more or less. I mean, just, I'm thinking of one of the sort of, uh, there are various references to the to the Sambatyon that uh, that appear in Israeli culture or Israeli popular culture, and sort of one example is a Hudbanai's song Hakochav Mi Mechoz Gushdan about this uh, this beautiful beautiful young girl who you won't find anyone like her. Uh, he sings from Nahar Yarkon at Hasambatyon. You you can't you won't find anyone like her from the Yarkon River. All the way to the to the Sambatyon, and if, from an Israeli context, okay, then the Yarkon is the river that courses down, the, you know, right through Tel Aviv. So that's like at the very center, and then the Sambatyon is at the very edge. So that's sort of that's sort of what the the river comes to comes to represent. And so the interesting question is then, well, how did the tribes end up specifically there, and how did they end up behind the Sambatyon? 
Yeah, so I want to leave that for a second. First of all, you mentioned the uh, the Bartanura, the Rav, uh, Mishnayis. His uh, letters, it, it's been collected. There's a critical edition. May There's a critical edition. For those interested in reading it, very fascinating uh, letters, as you mentioned. Also, yeah, I totally blanked on the Gemara in uh, Sanhedrin with Rabbi Kiva and Tornis Rufus that you mentioned there. Uh, this is what, That's kind of what happens when I record these uh, series over time. And I recorded the, 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 the previous few episodes were recorded like uh, two months ago. So I kind of... Uh, Forgot to, you know, didn't uh, review everything in the, for the series. But yes, oh, that, 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 that Gemara, and like you say, you know, Rakiva tells him, you want to see about Chavez, look at the Sambatian River. So, yeah. I mean, I, well, I want to talk about, do, as you mentioned, it kind of moves. I mean, how does it kind of move, though? You have these, the, the sources conflict. I mean, how does one source really deal with the other source? I don't know if there's an exact answer to this, where it's kind of moving in, even just sticking to, to yeah, any, any, I mean, anything. It's it just even Chazal, it's moving all over. Yeah. So how do we how how can we make sense of this? Yeah. So and that's you know what's what I've tried to do in my work. It's maybe easier you know somewhat with sources like Pliny or Josephus, where you have a single statement in Pliny, a single statement in Josephus. Yeah. But what do you do in a rabbinic context where you have just so many so many different sources and so many different texts that are saying so many different things? So what I've tried to do is really to try to organize uh, the various rabbinic texts. And I've come to the view that there basically are four main rabbinic traditions about the Sambachon River, which I think actually can be that we can get a sense of when approximately each one of them originated, which is not to say that you have one source that's that's talked about for a while and then that disappears and is replaced. No, a source or a particular tradition emerges in a particular in a particular context, in response to particular challenges, and then, you know, and actually then sort of continues to exist for a very long time. Uh, but then in, in response to new changes, a certain other tradition is then sort of codified and and then and then persists. So I'll give, let me run through these four traditions as I see it sort of briefly, but then I think it might actually make sense for us to step back a little bit, because I think it's also important to bear in mind, and I actually want to sort of emphasize this to your listeners, that of course, we're not just dealing with Jewish sources. I mean, this already came, became apparent with Pliny, but we also have, later on, we also have Christian sources that are that are referring, also Muslim sources that are referring to this river. And sometimes those, that other material can be helpful because some of those texts actually we have actually more precise dates for you know, when a particular text was composed that we can then can then assist us a little bit in situating the river with uh, you know situating the rabbinic sources in time. Uh, and there's also another piece that needs to be thrown in is that in a way before we even get to the rabbinic sources, there's actually there's a pseudepigraphic literature, you know, sort of non-rabbinic Jewish literature that is also dealing with the river. And if I could actually as I think through this more, I'd actually love to start there because I think that enables us actually to sort of to get at this more. Because actually that material, uh, it's actually not so, um, it's not exactly about the, um, about the Sambatyon always per se, but about the tribes. And what I want to get at here is that we have actually a very important substitution that takes place. So I said before that Josephus in Book 11 of the Jewish Antiquities has the 10 tribes located past the Euphrates River. And this is actually something that we see in a lot of this uh, pseudepigraphic literature, texts like uh, Tu Baruch from the early 2nd century uh, CE. 
or even a little bit earlier for Ezra, uh, fourth book of Ezra from the late first century CE, where we have uh, reports about basically how the tribes are located past the Euphrates River. And it's not even necessarily clear that they're just on the other side of the Euphrates River. In fact, it's actually, it's actually quite clear that they're not. Uh, for Ezra talks about how even after crossing the Euphrates, the tribes still had to wander a year and a half until they got to the place that God had destined for them. Also from Tubaruch, because of various formulations there where it's a little bit unclear, um, it, seems, it seems actually quite clear that they're not simply right across the Euphrates, but also somewhat further, further away. Uh, but the point I want to make here is that in, you know, around 100, you know, around the year 100, in Josephus, in Tubaruch, in for Ezra, very clear association between the 10 tribes and the Euphrates River. Why the Euphrates River? Because, I think, because the Euphrates River was a key boundary at that point in time, geopolitically, between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire. Uh, and really, it was in the late first century into the sec- early second century that that the Euphrates really played this key role, sort of dividing these two parts of the world from one another. And so for Jewish authors, who especially in the decades after the revolt are, are keen to sort of, you know, hold out hope for some kind of Jewish revival in the future, it's great to sort of imagine, uh, to posit that, there, that there's this massive Jewish population on the other side of the of the Euphrates River that one day is going to be reunited with the rest of us. And Josephus, when he refers to the tribes past Euphrates, he actually sort of in a way talks about how untold masses, you know, and I think he's in a way, you know, sort of implying that there's, you know, there's, there's some real power there that could at a certain future point be deployed. Um, And there are other hints elsewhere. I mean, even at one point in the Jewish war, he refers, uh, he has Titus alleged that the Jews were sort of sending out feelers to you know, populations on the other side of the Euphrates, hoping that they would intervene on their behalf. So sorry, I am going to come back to the Sambatyon, but I just think it's important to talk about this because I think I'm trying to chart really how these, this population or whatever, popu- whatever group it is got conflated with the river. And so I think it starts because of this Euphrates tribes uh, conflation that we have. But then at a certain point in time, the Romans managed to conquer territory past the Euphrates uh, as we headed later into the second century. And then for various other reasons, the, the Euphrates actually loses its status as this key sort of geopolitical geopolitical border, um, which then you know, results in it making much less sense to talk about uh, you know, the tribes past the, the Euphrates River, per se. I mean, one thing that I forgot to mention is that if we go back to the earliest biblical accounts of where the tribes, the Northern Kingdom tribes were deported, it was, you know, to, you know, tributary of the, of the Euphrates, actually. So that there's actually a very, you know, it, it goes, you know, deep back into biblical, biblical times, this association between the tribes and the, and, and, and the Euphrates in some sense. But what's really interesting to me is that it's the sources that I just mentioned that really emphasize the Euphrates and not a tributary thereof, even though the sources then go on to actually push the tribes, you know, well past the Euphrates. So we already have then in the, you know, around the year 100, this sense, the tribes are sort of located somewhere sort of far out there to the east. And, and so I think that as people then, as you know, the tradition evolved and people wanted to sort of give a sense of well, where they locate, where exactly are they? Uh, it sort of it sort of made sense in a way to to suggest oh well there's actually this there's this there's this river um, 
that, you know, in a way, I mean, sometimes I like to think about it sort of a river without a people for a people without a river, in a sense, to sort of paraphrase this, you know, famous problematic Zionist uh, slogan. Uh, so, I mean, you already have this tradition. Well, and here, actually, I need to go back and, and introduce the various rabbinic strands of the discussion. So let's sort of bracket what I've said thus far, and then that'll, I think, I'll be able to clarify a bit better how the tribes got conflated with the with the Sabbat Yon, and feel free to probe if uh, if it needs to come out more clearly. So anyway, so back to where we sort of were uh, going to get before these four rabbinic traditions about the river as I as I see it. So the oldest one, it seems to me, is you know what I like to refer to as the Sabbat Yon will prove it uh, tradition, Nahar Sabbat Yon Yochiach, which shows up in 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 a diverse array of rabbinic sources, but always uh, involves again this this confrontation or this dialogue between Turnus Rufus, uh, the name varies from time to time, and uh, this uh, Roman governor of Judea, and Rabbi Akiva. And to me, the fact that it's, that it's always these two figures, whereas we see in a lot of other rabbinic discussions or, or debates, we often see the, the exact you know, the exact figures who are credited with particular words or particular uh, positions, they actually vary over time and over source. But this is very fixed, which leads me to think that this was actually quite early on, became a fixed tradition, uh, and, you know, goes back to the Tanaim, to the Tanaitic period of, of rabbinic uh, of rabbinic scholarship. And it's basically this debate where Turnus Rufus, you know, confronts uh, Rabbi Kiva, what is one day from another? In other words, what is it with you Jews and, and Shabbat? Why do you, you know, why do you hold that there's this special day out there? To which Rabbi Akiva replies, well, what is one man from another? In other words, you know, what's so special about you that you have all this, you know, power that other people don't have? And so the Roman, uh, he responds, the Roman governor responds, well, because my Lord, namely the emperor, you know, so desired. Likewise with Shabbat, you know, so my Lord desired, it says Rabbi Akiva. And then the Roman proceeds to say, well, you know, so, but how can you say that today, you know, let's say is, is Shabbat? And one of the proofs that is, that is given is, well, let the Sambachon River prove it. Again, more, I think, for me, this only reinforces my sense that the Sambachon was originally a Roman idea, because he's saying, look, you know, if you, you, you Romans, you talk about that there's this river that sort of, you know, dies out on the Sabbath, well, so there you have it, you know, that's the day, that's, uh, that's, that's Shabbat. But it's obviously a form of a, a kind of rabbinic response to Rome and to Roman claims of imperial hegemony and world mastery. No, you think, you Romans, that you are in control of everything and that you decide, you know, what, what time it is and who's who in the world. But no, you do not have, you do not have complete mastery. There is this, there are phenomena that you, that you do not control, that you do not master, uh, and that's precisely what makes Jewish existence and Jewish continuity viable. Uh, in a way, it's a kind of parallel to the famous Titus and the and the gnat or mosquito story, where Titus, you know, celebrating his great triumph after destroying Beit Hamidash in Jerusalem, uh, you know, it's, it's it's supposed to be this you know incredible triumphant moment, and then this little gnat basically you know makes its way into his nose, and you know the lowliest, smallest of creatures basically un. un undoes the mightiest of, of human beings and so forth. So it's a similar kind of move that I think is happening there. In any case, so that, that source, that tradition, the Nahar Sabatyon Yochiach, there's no, it doesn't locate the river anywhere because it doesn't, it doesn't need to. It's just, it's purely about time. Um, it's about the you know, Shabbat as a particular day. Then the next tradition uh, that 
again, from the figures who it's associated with, it, it seems uh, quite clear that it's an Amoraic tradition that I think goes back to, say, the early 5th century or so. Uh, it's the three exiles tradition. And this we have um, a notion that basically there were three great exiles of, of the Jewish uh, uh, of the Jewish people. And this refers to a pasuk in Isaiah, Isaiah 49.9. And I'll just read this quickly in English where it talks about, well, I created you and appointed you a covenant people, restoring the land, allotting anew the desolate holdings, saying to the prisoners, go free. So that's the first exile, according to this, according to the exegesis at the root of this tradition. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall pasture along the roads, and every bare height shall be their pasture. That's the third group. So basically, the you know the 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 exegesis of this biblical verse sort of seems to point to uh, to the articulators of this tradition that there are basically are three great Jewish exiles, um, and there one of them, and sometimes even two of them, are bound up with the Sambation River. So that's where we first see the first sort of beginnings of a kind of conflation between the Sabbatian River and some kind of exiled Jewish population, though it's not, you know, it's by no means sort of, uh, you know, you know, complete. Okay. And then the third, which I see is dating from around the same time, Amorite period, is what I like to call the ten tribes, two tribes uh, uh, tradition. And we see this, for example, in Bereshit Rabbah. Rabbi uh, Yehuda, the son of Rabbi Simon, said that the ten tribes were not exiled to the place where the tribes of Judah and Benjamin were exiled. The ten tribes were exiled to across from the river Sambation, whereas the tribes of Judah and Benjamin are scattered in all the lands. So here it's in this tradition that we get sort of, in a way, the sort of classic motif that we sort of imagine. I think that most of us, when we think about the Sabbatian legend, okay, there's Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes from the southern kingdom that, that are sort of in the world that we know, and then the ten tribes there past uh, this Sabbatian river. So what I want to just sort of highlight here is this is in a way basically exactly what Josephus was saying, except that now we've substituted the river Sabbatian for the river uh, Euphrates. Come back to that in just a moment. And then the fourth tradition is what I like to refer to as the Sons of Moses tradition. And this goes back to uh, passages in, really, to Shmot uh, 32.10, where, you know, God, Hashem gets so angry with, uh, with Bnei Yisrael uh, that he basically says, you know, let me destroy them and I'll make of you a great nation, you know, Moshe. I'm going to, let me start over, I'm going to make a new people. Um, and there's no real indication that that happens in the you know in the shot of of Shemot, but but it sort of nonetheless sort of plants this kind of you know seed for what then emerges as a whole elaborate legend, the notion that there are these Bnei Moshe, the, these sons of Moses who are who are out there, and well they need a place you know if they're going to exist they need a place to live, so well why not place them you know. Uh, at the Sambatyon. And there specifically, I would say that because, you know, the Bnei Moshe, by virtue of the context in which they, God decides to create them, are clearly going to be a very righteous, you know, uh, moral, uh, you know, people in contrast with the very problematic exiled tribes, um, having them sort of at the Sambatyon in a way sort of perhaps responds to sort of the sense of, well, how do, you know, why do the tribes even merit, you know, to be past this particular river, even though, of course, a lot of the traditions do, in fact, have them have them there. Okay, so we were getting at the question of, well, why exactly 
do we get to this point then where the tribes are located then past the Sambatyon? And I think basically, like, it's hard to say with certainty why something happens. I mean, I think it's already, though, important that we can sort of demonstrate that it does happen historically in time that are sources that we can actually document the shift that takes place. But I can, I can gander a few explanations. One is a, a sort of political or religious historical explanation, which is that, uh, that you know, as the as the Roman Empire and really as Christianity spreads throughout the throughout the, the known world, as we head really into the especially into the fourth century uh, and and beyond, you know, it's in the early fourth century that the Roman Empire in the West starts to become Christian. But you have Christianity spreading also in the East, um, and Christianity representing a real challenge to the viability of you know claiming to be the new Israel and so forth. The notion. Uh, that the tribes are somewhere further, you know, you know, f- further away uh, becomes, you know, even more attractive. And then the notion that you can sort of put it, you know, put them behind this river that you, you know, that you know is, you know, somewhere out there. You don't exactly know where, but in a way, the fact that you don't exactly know where is, in a way, a kind of safety. It's this kind of guarantee that okay, there is sort of this population that's living free, that's not, you know, that's that's not sort of confronted with this with this challenge out there. Uh, and then the other is sort of a kind of literary or symbolic perspective, which is that so already going back to the first strand of rabbinic of these rabbinic traditions, the Nahar Sabbatyon Yochiach strand, and this, you know the Sabbatyon there is playing a, a role as a kind of marker of time, but not specifically space, but a marker of time that redounds to the viability uh, of Judaism as a as a practice, right? Uh, and the notion that they're the tribes, that the exiled tribes still exist, already, I think we see this already in Josephus, and even before, is a kind of sucker for Judaism to know that, okay, this population has been exiled, but they still exist, they're one day going to be reunited with the people. That also is a kind of testimony to the viability of Judaism, but it's a testimony in space, not so much in time. And so I think these two sort of testimonies that were out there, in a way, you know, became fused. Uh, and I actually, I like to speak about the Sambatyon as, as Judaism's space-time continuum, sort of on the model of, of, of physics, because it really sort of brings together uh, these two aspects, space and time, in a really nice in a really nice way. It's sort of, and if we imagine a lot of the depictions of how the, what the people are like who live past it or near it, it's almost sort of messianic in character. So there's almost this sense of like sort of, the, you know, the messianic age in the future, it's actually... It's sort of there. I mean, it's just, you know, this future time is sort of in another place already on this earth. Again, a sort of space-time continuum, but then also space-time continuum in the sense that, again, the river sort of testifies to the viability of Judaism. This population testifies to this viability of, uh, you know, to the viability of Judaism. And the fact that they're sort of like conjoined, that they're juxtaposed with one another in a way only strengthens, in a way sort of, the, the legend becomes sort of uh, it's um, it's it becomes more than the sum of its parts in a sense. Uh, I think one could say. So that's that's sort of my sense of sort of why this why this happens. But again, what's what's fascinating for me is so the Sambatyon again in in Pliny and in Josephus it's in, in the early rabbinic strata. Um, it's not at all a border in any sense, and then it becomes actually in a way this very hard and fast border. Though it then somewhat gets effaced a little bit in some of the later accounts, say, of the Eldad Hadani tradition, 
in which, you know, and some others in which you have some tribes are passed to somebody, you know, like on our side of the Sambadion and some are on the other side. And it, as we said before, it gets very complicated where in the sons of Moses, B'nai Moshe are there. It gets very sort of a bit complicated. But nonetheless, in in general, you know, speaking, you know, roughly speaking, the Sambadion becomes this important sort of boundary point, uh, you know, separating in a way the known world that we experience from this, you know, from this other uh, other world, uh, and again becomes a kind of you know messianic uh, element in that past the Sambatyon, things are very different. There, the Jews are sovereign. There, the their conditions are much better. And that's actually another thing that for me is quite interesting because it's it almost it strikes me that there are in a way sort of two messianic models that Jews are are thinking about in a sense uh, across you know late antiquity into the medieval and early modern periods. There's, okay, so the one that we're talking about, the tribes past the Sabbatyon at the edge of the world. There's this great reservoir of Jewish power and hope that one day is going to be reunited with the rest of the people. Um, but then there's also this notion that the that Mashiach, that the Messiah is hanging out in Rome. And Rome is, you know, the very center of, of, of the universe. So you have either these masses, this massive population at the edge of the world, or this sole redemptive figure who's actually at the very center of the world. In both cases, you have this notion that the redeemed future is already in a sense present uh, in the world, um, but just in, in a very sort of, you know, not yet fully accessible form. So. Yeah, I mean, it, there's just a lot there with the Sambatian and a lot to unpack. I think you've covered, you know, uh, a, a nice amount. Um, I, I don't know if we mentioned also the Pasuk in Malachim, the original Pasuk, Vayagal Yisrael, Ashura Vayeshev Sambachalach Vachover and Har Goizan Vari Mother. So the Har Goizan's there, Nate, you mentioned, then it becomes the Euphrates, then it becomes Sambatian, they're busy with, with all this kind of, but that's, you know, the first thing that we kind of have. Um, and, and, and as you mentioned, you know, with the Elder Hadani, you have one, one thing that becomes through there, and then we didn't even mention Prester John, we'll mention Christian and Muslim sources also that near the river, across the river, and Tony de Montezino, other another part of this series, uh, Menashe ben Israel, where it's the Ruvain is on the other side, and it just it, you know it kind of lots of different things uh, and get conflated. So I want to get to some other uh, different parts, and I'm sure that we can go on uh, you know a lot more here. Um, I, I do want to ask you uh, one just more general question. I realized that we didn't um, cover before we get to the other sources and things like that. Uh, we mentioned this in the beginning, how some said, you know, it was water and some said it was sand and some said it was rocks that were, that were you know, flowing there and starting and stopping. So we've covered kind of its geographical location and how it kind of moved around and where it moved to. We kind of covered, you know, who was behind it, behind it, next to it, you know, across it or when did it run the whole week in Stop and Shabbos or vice versa. But what about the contents of the river? Is Was it water, sand, rocks, the different opinions on that? Yes, yes. Well, obviously, great question. This is a critical thing to discuss in the Sambatyon, because it is definitely one of the most special things about the river that, according to a lot of accounts, it's not even water at all. It's sand, it's rocks, as you say. So where does that come from? Well, it's clear that it's not in the very earliest stratum, uh, or the very earliest strata of the legend, because it's not something that's mentioned in, you know, in Pliny or Josephus. And David Kaufman, 19th century scholar, he had a, very early on proposed that maybe the idea that maybe it was originally a sand river. And, you know, because of whole sand in Hebrew, that then led to the idea, okay, well, it, it's flowing with sand, so it's flowing on whole and resting on Shabbat. But it can't be right because the earliest sources make no mention to this idea. But I do think that it's quite possible that he was, even though he was wrong, he was right. That is to say that this kind of punning on whole sand and profane, you know, time 
you know, the non-Shabbat days actually maybe does have something to commend it because this notion that the river, that it flows behol, as we see in some sources that, you know, presumably, you know, certainly originally meant that it's flowing on, you know, yamei hachol, that it's flowing on, the, you know, during the days of the week, led people to sort of imagine, oh, well, it's it's flowing with, it's flowing with sand. Uh, um, it's flowing with sand. And, and that, I think, then gives... Rise. Well, once it's flowing with sand, well, why why shouldn't it flow with why just with sand? Why not with rocks? You know, why not make it you know even more even more dramatic uh, and so forth? And that then, uh, and I think that tendency was also fed by a desire to clarify. Well, okay, so if there's this river and the tribes are on the other side of it, well, why don't they do what people do with rivers all all the time? Why don't they just cross it and come to you know come to us? Why don't we cross it and, and go to them? Why you know if they're there out there and there's this river, why not? Why can't there be why can't there be contact? And um, and so what we see you know in this I see this first originating in Midrash Bereshit Rabati, which it's a complicated text and hard to date exactly, but clearly pre 11th century. That's really to my understanding, the first place where we see, you know, what I would refer to as a really kind of miraculous account of the Sabbath Yom. Really, I mean, in, in all the rabbinic sources that I that I went through, these four rabbinic sort of traditions, um, we don't really see any real emphasis on anything particularly miraculous or, you know, especially dramatic in the Sabbath Yom. So again, sign for me that the earliest period of the legend, that was really not any, not, not really present or, or, or important. But just I'll read briefly in Midrash Bereshit Rabati with, and the river was full of sand and stones and pulled along sand and stones and made a great noise at night that could be heard for a distance of half a day's walk. And the river pulled along the sand and the stones all six days of labor and rested on, on Shabbat. And immediately from the onset of Shabbat until the close of Shabbat, fire erupted along the shore of the stream and the fire raged such that no man could approach within a mile of the stream, and the fire burned every plant along the stream until it swept the ground clean. So, it's sort of, you can imagine, so during the week, uh, plants sort of, you know, begin to grow, and then every Shabbat, they're burned to a crisp, uh, basically, is, you know, what the source is saying. And there are other sources that talk about fog instead of fire. So, but clearly what, what seems to emerge as we head into the Middle Ages, is this again this sort of miraculizing, this fantas- you know fantastical aspect uh, of the le- of the legend that again it really explains two things: why it is that during the week it's impossible impossible to navigate the river, and also why it is on Shabbat when it presumably you know is is quiet and ceases to flow and rests. Why it's not possible to pass to cross the river uh, then as well? So. Yeah, so so as I was saying, basically, so you know this this sort of miraculous element of the river emerges because you know to explain the obvious question, well, why you know why don't we pass it? Why why can't we do that? But it's sort of interesting is that in a sense, you know, it's 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 it's, a, it's an important question. You know, how do we describe the function of the Nahar Sabbat Yom Yochiach proof in the earliest Strand River Bene text? You know, at least you know some scholars have talked about. You know that the Sabbatian represents a kind of natural law. It's basically rooting the Shabbat in nature, in a sense. If we want to go that route, then it becomes a sort of interesting paradox that this, you know, that this river that's you know rooting the Shabbat in nature then takes on all these miraculous qualities that are sort of anything but you know sort of 
you know, the, the most non-natural sort of things that you could possibly imagine. I think I actually am inclined to think that it's problematic to think about the Sambatyon as representing a kind of natural law. I think in a sense, it's, it's in a way trying to push against a kind of Roman notion that there is a kind of universal law that, you know, that, that structures, because it wants to, it wants to, it wants God ultimately to be in control. And yet at the same time, it's willing to make a certain sort of concession to the way that the Roman and the Greeks and Romans are thinking about nature, because it knows that that's a way that they can, in a way, be, that's in a way you can argue with them. And that's sort of, what's interesting is that that sort of notion that the Sabbatun will prove you know, it's only something that comes up in a context in which the sources are clearly imagining, fantasizing the kind of Jewish, non-Jewish controversy or exchange. It's not, you know, the source, other sources like, you know, the 10-2 tradition that, okay, are clearly more internally directed. I mean, they're all internally directed. They're all, they're all internal Jewish sources, but it's that one strand is interested in sort of imagining, well, what are you going to say, you know, to the non-Jew who challenges you about Shabbat? The other sources are not so much interested in that. And, and by the way, that that notion of this sort of imagined debate, I mean, that that persists, you know, well into the Middle Ages. We have this, you know, this piyut, um, uh, you know, that's, you know, that, you know, that we have in the Ashkenazic uh, tradition, Yom Shabbat Kadosh Hu, where you actually, one of the verses actually imagines, you know, hold on one second. Um, where is it? Yeah, I'll just I'll just uh, read here. Zeha ot asher sam el Shabbat beno vein bene Israel uvashvi asher hoel sambat yon hanahar shabchol yom ratz venimhar yochiach bo manoach tashiv lemin asher shoel. This is fascinating for me. Tashiv lemin asher shoel that it's sort of you know the piyut is in a sense training you you know for you know for when you you know in the marketplace encounter the Christian who what is this Shabbat nonsense. And it's doing it, it's, it's replaying, in a sense, the Turnus Rufus-Rabbi Kiva debate. But instead of, you know, an elite Roman and an elite rabbi, it's now you and, you know, your, your Christian neighbor, basically, you know, encountering each other on the street. Anyway, so we want to get, though, to this whole question of, like, this sort of how the, the river takes on these miraculous qualities. So okay, it's obviously there to explain, you know, how, why can't they cross to us? Why can't we cross to them? It's also perhaps, you know, I think engaging with, these Christian traditions of the kingdom of Prester John, which is also, you know, the Christians also had in a way their kind of parallel tradition, which is that there's this vast, you know, sort of sovereign Christian empire, you know, way off in the East. And Christians, when they thought about the 10 tribes, you know, being off somewhere in the distance uh, past this river, they imagined, well, that's where the realm of Prester John is located. And basically there the tribes are subjected to Prester John. So it's sort of in a way fascinating that both Christians and Jews, as they, you know, they what they imagine is out there at the edge of the world. They imagine sort of the perfect version of the world as they imagine. So for the Jews, it's of course these these Jews are living there free. They're living you know beautiful, perfect halachic lives. They're they're you know they're safe. The Christians imagine no, they're actually they're under our you know sovereignty. We're in charge there, um, and are we have guards posted along the river. That's what's preventing them from coming back to you guys or preventing you from going to them. So it could be that this. You could also see these sort of miraculous, all these you know features as a way of sort of responding to or engaging in dialogue and dispute with these with these uh, Christian traditions. Uh, the Jews, of course, you know, much better to have sort of these miraculous, you know, sort of clearly sort of God ordained miracles that take place than Christian sentries who are who are 
who are standing guard. So that's, but, but the fascinating thing, you know, in uh, a source like Midrash Bereshit Rabati is that, that it's not a halachic uh, argument, actually. It's not, oh, the river rests on Shabbat, but, you know, it's Shabbat. We can't, you know, because of Tchum Shabbat, we can't actually, you know, the tribes can't cross or we can't cross. No, it's actually, it's because of this fire. It's because of this fog. It's because it's actually physically impossible to cross the river. And this to me is one of the, another fascinating sort of shift that clearly takes place, you know, that we can see it in the source material from this sort of miraculous uh, description of the, of the river to a, to a more, you know, halachic uh, description of the river, because we find in, as we head into the early modern period, at least on my understanding, these sort of these miraculous sources, they start to fade away. It's not that they're not, you know, the Eldad Hadani material in which a lot of these things appear. I mean, these texts are still circulating there, you know, they're being pub, you know, they're being formally printed, you know, for the first time and so forth. So they're around, but the new source material that, that emerges as we head into the late middle ages, into the early modern period, to my understanding, speaks in very different terms and is not talking about, you know, this physical impossibility of crossing, but is instead instead talking about the um, the halachic impermissibility of crossing, and that's really quite a fascinating shift. Yeah. So, what are the earliest sources in this vein? I re- referenced it before in a different context. Uh, Ravovadia Bartanura's second letter from 1489. So we talked about how he locates the the Sabbaton in the desert, a 50 days walk from you know from Aden in, in Yemen. Uh, but he talks there about okay, it encircles, surrounds like a thread the entire land in which the Israelites dwell. Uh, it hurls stones and sand every weekday and does not rest except on the on Shabbat. And this brings it about that if a Jew will, you know is traveling in this land, he's not going to you know lo yechalel Shabbat. He's not going to desecrate Shabbat. By crossing the river, uh, and thereafter, then you know we see more and more sources in this vein that then leads to a different kind of challenge, which is well, okay, if it's merely you know halachic restriction that's preventing you know people from crossing the, the tribes or us from crossing the river, well, surely for pikuach nefesh, I mean you know I mean if, if why couldn't the tribes then come and actually redeem us, um, and and that. Um, which, you know, is obviously an important question. But before I get to that, I want to sort of try to play around a little bit with, well, what accounts for this shift exactly? Why this move in this halachic direction? Two things that I want, well, actually, well, a few things I want to say about that. One, I'm oversimplifying a little bit because there is this whole other set of legends that are like the Alexander Romance. And we do have a text from the mid-14th century uh, in which we have an encounter where Alexander and his army, they're at the edge of the world, they come to the Sabbatyon, they want to cross. Alexander sends this Jew Menachem across the river uh, to negotiate with the ten tribes to see about you know letting him pass through their realm on you know on route to you know further conquest. And the tribes they get really angry at this Menachem, like, you know, Mapitom, what did you know, you desecrated Shabbat, how did you, you know, how did you do this? And Menachem tries to sort of, well, I was scared, I was gonna they were all going to cross and I'd be left alone with these, you know, wild beasts on the other side. And then, so I didn't want to do that. So, nefesh and oh, you know, that's nonsense. You didn't really need to fear from these wild beasts. And so there is, but it's sort of an isolated source and it's referring to an ancient, you know, something that happened in the, in the past. It's not actually grappling. It's so far as I can tell, it's in the 15th century that 
you really start having texts that are sort of grappling in the present with, well, okay, it's for halachic reasons that the tribes can't cross or that we can't cross to them. And so why does that happen? Um, one thing that I find interesting in the Ovadia Bartanura letter, later in that same letter, he refers to the, his person, he, the addressee of his letter. He says, you know, you were asking me all these signs and miracles that people say you have on Harabait, you know, on the Temple Mount and in the burial caves of our sages, you know, Eberetz Yisrael and Land of Israel. And how shall I respond to you? I haven't seen any wonders. You know, what you heard about candles in the temple that flickered and went out on the ninth of Av. Yeah, people talk about that, but I don't, I didn't really see much proof. And he basically says like, you know, ultimately sort of concludes this whole section, like this is all nonsense. And wise men like you should be more careful in assessing the truth of matters and not falling for tall tales. So that leads me to wonder if there isn't perhaps something of a just general civil, you know, cultural shift that's taking place that, Obviously, Avadi Bertanero, he still, you know, seems happy to entertain the notion of the sabbatical river off 50 days walk into the desert. But it's not, you know, he, the tendency is not to sort of overly emphasize the miraculous nature of it, um, you know, with all these fires and fogs. So perhaps what's sort of happening is that there's just sort of a tendency not to think in such, you know, again, fantastical terms. Uh, and so, you know, the halakha makes, you know, sort of is sort of there as a kind of substitute. There's also, it's also sort of fascinating in terms of, you know, what it does for the meaning of the legend, because it basically says that actually the legend then, it's not only about sort of, you know, providing a kind of proof for the viability of Judaism, but it's actually sort of about sort of guaranteeing the sort of stability of the overarching, you know, state of Jewish existence or the halachic system, let's say. Like, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, yes, we have, we know that, on the, that there's a kind of on the other side, there's sort of the, the messianic realm, um, but it's not something that we can bring about. You know, the halachic system is basically it's ordained, it's staying the way it is, because the, the implication, right? If if it's merely for halachic reasons that you can't, the river can't be crossed. It's basically well, in a sense, the Jews could redeem themselves if only they would, if only they would desecrate Shabbat. If only the tribes would break Shabbat, they could come and redeem their brethren, or we could get, you know, we could we could go to them. But no, the legend seems to be sort of in this new halachic guy seems to be sort of, you know, insisting on the maintenance of the halachic world order, so to speak. Um, and so, but that, as I said, that gives rise then to this challenge, you know, and we hear this in, 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 in Christian sources beginning, so far as I can tell, beginning in the 16th century. You know, why is it, you know, you guys say that there's this river out there. This is all nonsense. If they, you know, because you... They, you're, you know, you guys, you claim that you're oppressed and treated poorly here, you know, in Christendom. Well, you're, why don't these people come and rescue you? Why can't they, you know, why can't they, why can't they save you? Can't they cross in order to save you? You know, again, the Pikuach Nefesh uh, argument. And so I just to give one example, this uh, Christian author, Victor von Karben, writing in 1508, he has a Jewish voice saying, you know, well, the Samatyon raises, you know, rages so wildly during the week, we can't cross it. Um, you know, it, it Quiets down Fridays at six o'clock in the afternoon uh, until Saturday at six o'clock in the afternoon. Um, but we can't Friday. We don't have enough time to cross it because it's too wide. And on Saturday we can't. Otherwise, you know, otherwise the Red Jews would have. You know, and this is a different population. This that emerges in the Middle Ages. This notion of these Red Jews. We can say more about them if you want. They would have come long ago and liberated us. And the Christian says, "Well, you damnable Jew, are you not ashamed of your evident lies? You know." 
how many Jews have you know traveled since time immemorial from all countries, you know, and often been on sea for months, weeks at a time, you know, including on Shabbat, and you know. Wouldn't you know? Wouldn't it be justified for them to you know to break out one Shabbat to come and free you and to you know to liberate you and save you from your oppression? This is all nonsense. So this is actually a key shift that happens in the Middle Ages. Christians and Jews they seem to agree that the river exists. Head into the early modern period, the Christians are saying no, it doesn't exist, and the Jews are still trying to hold on to its existence. This is an imagined dialogue, you know, that a Christian imagines, and you can sort of see that in the way that he actually very interesting what he does with time here, where he has. He says, well, the river comes down Friday at six o'clock, but we don't have time. There's not enough time on Friday for us to cross it. You know, so very strange, you know, obviously Shabbat starts, you know, Friday in the evening. But so anyway, but uh, but what I wanted to sort of say really here about the, the, the halachic issue is that it's really not clear from a halachic perspective, like as, as he does bring up here, um, you know, I mean, Jews were traveling on, you know, on boats on Shabbat. And if we go back as he seems to be talking here and some of our early modern sources again do have the river you know seemingly as as a waterway um you could actually seems to me you could actually you know navigate it uh on shabbat it's not clear that that you know for, that really halakhically speaking that you couldn't actually cross uh, the river so i think that we're dealing almost in a sense with a kind of pseudo or almost popular halachic notion in a sense that again, it's not so much about the specifics uh, impossibility from a halakhic sense of, of crossing the river, but it's more what this whole river represents in terms of, again, maintaining the overall halakhic order, maintaining, insisting upon the overall stability of the Jewish sort of situation in the world. And that's really where um, where I think it makes sense to bring in the Akhtamut legend, which is, of course, very famously conjoined with the Akhtamut prayer of Shavuot. Uh, and is you know claims this is a legend that basically claims to be explained how a particular how the famous piyut that's chanted on Shavuot uh, emerged. And basically, the the main you know just summarize very briefly the legend is that the Jews of Worms were threatened by a Christian magician, and the community was going to be I believe exterminated or was threatened with destruction. And so, what did the Jews do? They dispatch a group of uh, say of rabbis to the to the Sambadion to the Ten Lost Tribes, and right before crossing the river. Um, the the one specific one particular rabbi. Yeah, so Rabbi you know, Meir Shatz, he's um, you know, he's gonna. He says, oh, "Okay, I will cross alone. Let me cross." Uh, and then you know, he's immediately arrested by the ten by the tribes on the other side for having you know desecrated Shabbat by crossing the river. But then he explains that in fact his community is you know is in dire straits and is you know people are going to be killed. And so then, actually, uh, he's released from prison, and the, the the community of the of the tribes they actually dispatch one of their own, who's uh, you know skilled in magical and the magical arts, to go back to Worms to basically you know engage in a kind of magical context with the contest, uh, excuse me, with the Christian magician, and basically the the, the town, the the Jewish community is saved. But of course, Rabbi Meir needs to stay where he is because he can no longer justify crossing the river. And so in a sense, the whole Akhtamut story is the story that proves the rule, which is that um, that you can't, uh, you know, okay, so there's a very specific context, you know, for a very particular operation, let's say, uh, you know, it's permissible. Uh, but the overall, in the end, the story, the legend basically, you know, reaffirms the Jewish, you know, the halachic order, uh, you know, in, in compelling Meir Shatz to stay, you know, 
on the far side of the Sampachon. Um, so, and I see this legend, and here I'm perhaps, you know, you know, this requires, I think I can prove that this all works, but here I'm suggesting that a legend like the Akdamu legend is really emerging to respond to this Christian challenge that, emer you know, about the, you know, Pikuach Nefesh that really emerges once we get this shift from a miraculous depiction of the river to a more halachic depiction of the river. And this goes against, you know, in a lot of the scholarship on, on the Akdamut legend, it really is pushed back into the deep into the Middle Ages. But it's not, but it seems to me that in the version in which I, that involves the Sambat Yon, it really actually is sort of emerges in, in the 16th century to the best of my ability to determine. And in that sense, fits very well the sort of the, the historical reconstruction that I'm that I'm proposing. Now, I mean, listen, we covered a lot. There's a lot, lot more to, to cover, but, uh, you know, I guess we'll leave it at that, you know, more or less. But what I do want to ask you about is, you know, throughout the throughout the centuries, you know, after this, especially, I mean, there's it's, it pops up uh, all over. You, uh, you didn't we didn't really mention, you know, you mentioned Prester John stuff. I don't know if there's any other Christian or Muslim sources you want to mention. And also, in general, uh, Jewish sources where you have uh, Ravram Varisol, Azari de Rossi's Marianayim, uh, David Gans and the Samach David, Ravram Yogel, Manash ben Israel, or, you know, mentioned that it will be, you know, Antonio de Montezino's story of Manash ben Israel's, um, his Mikvi Israel, Hope of Israel, there's that as well, and, you know, it, et cetera. I mean, we're, we're so you, I guess, talk about kind of both the Jewish sources that I mentioned and others that you want to mention and, you know, Christian and Muslim sources, how it, how the Sambachan, you know, continues to come up throughout the centuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and just, you know, also we mentioned a little bit, you know, Christian and Muslim sources, but you know, just also there is, you know, the B'nai Moshe, they appear in the Quran and there are some, uh, there is some Muslim exegesis of the Quran that uh, that actually sort of connects the you know places that B'nai Moshe on a sand river, which is clearly you know that is has sabbatical nature. So clearly Muslims are aware of the, of, the, of this legend. There's a there's a story that appears in the Thousand of One Nights about a brass city that's located near a sand river. That again, it seems clear that it's it's this it's the same legend that we're talking about. So uh, so the, the the legend comes up there as well. One of the other things I want to say, though, about the early modern period is that there's another another real challenge that emerges in the in the early modern period with regards to the Sambachon, and that is that in the age of explorations, as the I already sort of talked about how Christians are sort of in a way pushing Jews on this halachic issue. Why don't they come and save you? Uh, but there's an, another point of pressure here is that in you know the age of exploration, the world map is gradually being filled in more and more, and I think it it becomes sort of harder and harder. To really, or there's, you know, it becomes a bit more difficult to say, oh, you know, somewhere at the edge of the world, there is this river. You know, you could, in the Middle Ages, it was clear that there were these vast reaches of the world that, you know, beyond what we knew. But in the early modern period, that starts to really change. Uh, and so one of the things, and that sort of, in a way, respond, responded to in sources, when we see, we encounter sources that are talking about, that allege, well, the tribes of the Red Jews, they're, they're on the march. They've now started crossing the river. The river has actually stopped moving. So that's in a way, a way of trying to sort of say, okay, there is something, there is something happening here um, that you know, confirms that the river in fact exists. Or, but to me, what's even more fascinating, and this is something that, again, only, we only really start to see in, in the 15th, 16th century, uh, 16th, 17th century, so far as I can tell, is that 
you start to get testimony reporting the, the presence, the existence around Europe of alleged vials containing subbachon uh, sub water or sand or a mix thereof. Uh, and, and, you know, the allegation being that, well, during the week, you know, if you sort of look at this vial of, you know, liquid or, or sand or whatever, it's all sort of frothing and moving violently. But on the, on the, on the Sabbath, it, uh, it, you know, it calms down. And this actually, it's, it comes up actually in Menashe ben Israel's Esperanza de Israel, Mikveh Yisrael, where he reports actually there was a guy, you know, what's, up, what's fascinating, and it comes up in Avraham Yagel, you know, the, the, the Italian uh, polymath. And it, it's the way that sources, though, reference it, it's, it seems never to be that somebody says, well, I actually had one, have one of these, or I saw it. But it's, oh, Yagel says, oh, you know, in the time of my, my learned grandfather, a bottle was brought, you know, with this sand, and it was in movement six days. Or Menashe ben Israel, he says, well, there's this guy who reports that there was this guy. So it's sort of, you know, no one wants to come out and say, I have one of these. But it seems sort of, in a way, again, because the legend... Uh, you know, it, it actually did respond to real Jewish insecurity of a very deep nature that people wanted to sort of hold on to it in a way. And one of the ways you could hold on to it was by saying, well, actually, there are traces of, of this special water or sand or whatever it is that are, you know, that are out, or, out and about in the world as we know it. And really the most fascinating thing, well, actually, I'll just say two things about this. So in the source of Menashe ben Israel, in Esperanza de Israel, or Hope of Israel, he actually reports that, um, that, you know, so it was in Lisbon, in Portugal, that there was a glass filled with the same sand. And every Friday evening at the time of the onset of the Sabbath, uh, this guy who had it, it was actually a Muslim, he would walk to the street called the Rua Nova, the new street where the, you know, the forcibly converted Jews lived. And he would basically show them the glass and say, okay, close your shops, Jews, for the Sabbath has already begun. So the Sambat Yom becomes a kind of like... Uh, you know, timekeeper in a sense, and it reflects sort of early modern notions of time, more precise clocks. It's like, okay, here, you see this sabbatyon, you know, water or sand, it's not moving anymore. Okay, Shabbat has come, time to close your, time to close your store. So there's that. And then even more fascinating is uh, some sources from 18th century Germany that report that in the, in the community of Frankfurt, that there was actually one of these specimens of of Sambachon water or sand was actually kept in, uh, in the Beit in the Beit Knesset next to the Arona Kodesh, and that basically, um, and that the, the Chazan in the shul would basically sort of show it during Kabbalat Shabbat services. Uh, and so I'm just reading from one of these passages. And when the cantor, when the Chazan begins Lachadodi, he pulls aside the curtain, and one sees the water in the glass actively bubbling. Uh, the glass itself inclines to and fro, and the water pushes some red sand and small stones over itself. And then, so you know, everyone sings Lecha Dodi. Uh, and then, when the water ceases in its movement to some degree, you know, congregation starts to come, uh, calm down. And then, basically, you come, you know, it comes to a complete rest. And then you move into Baruchu and start Mari. So the Sabbat Yom becomes a kind of holy relic, according to these reports, in uh, in you know, in the Frankfurt synagogue. And this also raises a fascinating you know, question that we have a lot as historians you know, to deal with with our sources is, you know, how reliable are they? Is this testimony, we have it in, you know, in a few Christian authors, is it actually, you know, is it, is it reflecting, uh, you know, is it true testimony to what was going on at the time? Or are Christians, in a sense, 
having fun with this legend and elaborating it and taking it in, you know, in directions, perhaps even, you know, Jewish converts who know enough about it that they can actually elaborate. One of the sources actually that's reported in these sources is in fact a, a Jewish convert that we know of um, who claims that he was the guy who was sort of holding this vial of Sabbation water and sand and sort of manipulating it to sort of make it sort of, you know, move vilely and so forth. So again, to what degree are these Christian sources like casting like precious light into a Jewish tradition or practice that we otherwise don't know of? Or to what degree are they as Protestants who sort of in a way love to make fun of sort of ridiculous Catholic, Jewish and Catholic practices, in a sense sort of exaggerating what to them was already a strange legend in order to sort of, you know, from their perspective, you know, strengthen and enhance their arguments against Judaism. Okay, so what I want to just sort of jump now just sort of to where the Sambation is, you know, more or less in our day and age. Um, and here I just want to be sure to end with, uh, or just about end, with a novel from the year 2000 by the famous Italian linguist and novelist Umberto Eco, uh, you know, of In the Name of the Rose fame. His, uh, his novel, Baudolino, um, is, and, you know, Echo knew all these traditions backwards and forwards. And it's really amazing. I mean, non-Jewish author who had full mastery of all the sources that we've discussed and, 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 and others, and basically offers, creates the a kind of decent burial, I would almost say, for the Sambation River. That is to say, he basically manages to synthesize a lot of these different traditions and, um, so the novel is basically takes place in the Middle Ages. It involves sort of a mostly Christian group, but there's this Rabbi Shlomo or Solomon who's sort of tagging along with them, who tells, you know, is talking to the group about the Ten Lost Tribes and the Sabbation. And eventually toward the end of the novel, they actually make it to the Sabbation. Of course, they're too late for Shabbat, so they, you know, it's already Sunday. And they spend that week basically surveying, doing a reconnaissance mission along the full length of the river. They try to go to the source of it, thinking that they might be able to, uh, you know, cross it there, but it's such a steep, you know, complicated canyon, they can't. And then they walk all the way to where the Sambation basically ends by sort of collapsing into the abyss of the earth. And, um, and so that's why I say Echo is very self-consciously is sort of like trying to put this whole, you know, two millennial, you know, legend in a way to rest, to give it a decent burial, as I said. And he actually, you know, has the Jew cross, but he comes up with a very ingenious solution. How does the Jew cross? Because the Christians basically sort of strike him and knock him out. So they basically carry him across the river, more or less against his will. But that's how they manage to get him across. So it's actually sort of lovely how this, how this legend that, you know, for, for, for centuries was sort of, you know, a flashpoint of Christian Jewish debate and controversy in this novel from the year 2000, from this millennial year 2000, that's become sort of this ecumenical moment where the river is finally crossed by a group of Christians and this, you know, and this one Jewish figure who, who crossed together. And just the last thing I want to say about this is that in describing this river, Echo and his translator into English, William Weaver, famous translator of Italian literature into English, they pushed their respective languages petrologic and chromatic vocabularies to their limit. So if we think about the Sambadion as in a way pushing nature in a way to the limit, and we've seen some of the miraculous accounts of it in this in this talk, just want to read this one passage where Echo and Weaver refer to the incessant retching of granite, an eddy of bitumen, a sole undertow of alum, a churning of schist, a clash of orpiment against the banks, and the reddening of 
hematrites and cinnabars, the fading of leothargerium into saffron, ever paler, the belching of greenish earth that faded into dust of chrysocola and then transmigrated into nuances of indigo and violet. This is how he's describing all the stones and their respective colors that we find in the Sabatyon River. So, uh, and I think that's basically a good place to close, again, with this famous, uh, this famous contemporary novelist who, in a way, again, I think very self-consciously was trying in a way to sort of tie up the, all the loose ends of this, uh, of this legend. You know, it's the one place in the whole literature where you have a party actually sort of survey the entire course of the river from its start to its finish. Um, and, but, but of course, the legend, you know, lives on, and I think people still find it fascinating. I think there's still a lot of tremendous creative potential to do, to do stuff with it. Um, and it certainly lives on in my household because it's the name of our Wi-Fi uh, account, uh, Sabatyon, which I think is sort of a good use for, for it also. All right. Yeah, someone's, someone's driving through Arizona. I guess they'll find the Sabatyon Wi-Fi. They'll know it's, yeah, your, yeah. Uh, it's your Wi-Fi. But, um, but yeah, listen, I mean, it's, it still comes up. I mean, it comes up, you know, uh, it's, in, it's, in, it's in rabbinic sources. It's in uh, Chazal. People see it. It comes up all the time. Everyone knows about it. Um, like Thomas, we mentioned, and, and things like that. So, um, I, I wanted to ask you just also about uh, you know reading. You can uh, suggest to listeners. I think you uh, you have a couple of things that you've written. Uh, there are others. Like where can you point listeners who want to read more uh, about this uh, topic? Yeah. So let's see. Um, yeah. So um, so I mean I mentioned my piece that appeared in uh, AJS Review um, toward the source of the Sambation. Um and which deals really with the early period. Uh, we're still working on, you know, hopefully papers from the conference that we put on will still uh, come out. These things take a while, but uh, we're working on it. Uh, I would re- recommend an author like a German scholar, Rebecca Foss, who's really, I mean, she's really a scholar specifically on the Red Jews, but has also written on, on Messianic sort of debates and interactions between Jews and Christians. So some of this material comes up in her work. Uh, Moti Ben Melech, who... Uh, as a scholar specifically of Shlomo Molcho, the Messianic Pretender, and, and, and David Rubaini, uh, I would recommend I would recommend his work uh, as well. Uh, and I think you know, and then you know, also work on the on the ten tribes in general. I mean, a lot of these things uh, come up there. Um, um, Tzvi um, Bendor Benite, uh, his work on the ten lost tribes, so ten lost tribes of world history. I think it's called that comes up. I would also mention the work of Amicha Perry. Uh, uh, University of Haifa, Haifa professor. And I think, I mean, there's more stuff I can mention, but I think already that material, if you look in all those places, that's already going to take you to a lot of, you know, a lot of the classical sources will be cited, you know, one way or another in that material. Um, and I still hope that some of the stuff that I've written that deals with the later periods, a lot of it I haven't actually had a chance to really, you know, tie up, finalize, and publish, uh, including the bit about. Um, uh, Umberto Eco's Badolino that I hope one day will appear as a final echo, you know, punning on Eco's name and the fact that he's sort of, in a way, the last great source, at least thus far, on the Sambatyon. Yeah, and I'll, I'll link the other ones you mentioned. And, uh, you know, I think all those I, are a part of the series. Rebecca Vaz, Atif Ben Melech, Benit, and Micha Perry. So, uh, you know, this is we'll hear from them and uh, link to their things as well, but I'll link to it here as well. I mean, and just, you know, finally to tie it all together. So the Sambatyon, you know, I guess it's kind of, so how's it kind of viewed in, in your mind? It's kind of, 
Besides, again, just, just kind of viewing it besides for, of course, being in all the sources, as we mentioned, and the Midrashim and Chazal and everything like that, but it's kind of it's this demarcation between the secular and Jewish, it's between Jewish and non-Jewish, it's between Messianic device. You mentioned, like, it's a time thing. Like, how are you just tying it all together here at the end once we have this whole long conversation about it? Well, I mean, I, I love thinking about it as this, you know, as this border in, in space and time. And just to recapitulate some of what you said, I mean, it's a border between you know, uh, Kodesh Vichol. It's a border between Jew and non-Jew. It's a border between the world that we know and the world that we don't know. It's a world. It's a border between, uh, you know, Jewish and non-Jewish. It's it's sort of, and and again, I think for me, what's just always been fascinating and and again fun now, even to, in in this conversation, is just thinking of all the different permutations that all ultimately it all is a kind of one long reflection on, you know, in a sense. What does it mean to be Jewish? And you know, what is the situation, the position of Jews uh, in the world? Um, and how do, how do we defend ourselves uh, you know, as Jews against those who, you know, in history and perhaps in the present, see us as outmoded or unjustified or, un, you know, or ridiculous? Or, you know, there's, it's sort of the Sambatyon is in a way, in all of its different incarnations, is responding, uh, is responding. Uh, uh, to these various challenges, you know, whether it's concerned with halacha, whether it's concerned with the Jewish political or, you know, geopolitical fortunes, um, whether it's concerned with, you know, how do Jews, you know, think about time differently from non-Jews and so forth. So I think just for me, what's just exploring these sources and trying to unpack them, contextualizing them, and again, drawing out what are the, what are the questions that they're trying to answer how are they trying to make sense of the Jewish situation in the world? That's ultimately what I think legends like this are are doing, um, and I think that's part of why they they continue to reward us, you know, as we explore them today. Even if you know, even if we know that you know, again, I mean, today the map of the world is really filled in. You know, I mean, you you know, you know, look on Google Earth for the Sambatyon, you know, uh, or Google Maps, you won't find it. Um, but it's still you know. It's still, it's still, it's still productive. I think to grapple with this notion of you know some other realm, some other possibility uh, that's that's out there. Absolutely, and uh, and and as Sarah Sashvatim, as we've been discussing ten lost tribes here, you know, in this part of this uh, overall series. So I will link to the material that you uh, mentioned before in the show's notes. The listeners can check that out, and hopefully, this was informative. And just the tip of the iceberg, really, there's so much more to go into these primary sources, to look into them and to look more into the Sambatian. Like I said, it's something that's so, it's, you know, especially, well, a lot of this is the Ten Lost Tribes overall, but especially unique how it changes when it runs, when it doesn't run, what it what its contents are, where it is. I mean, there's so many things that are just changing in all the different sources. So this was just a, uh, you know, as, as, as long as we went, this was just like an overview and there's a lot more to discuss. And uh, thank you, Dr. Steinkoken, for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation. Thanks for referring to the tip of the iceberg. I love that you continued with a water metaphor right to the to the very end. Thanks so much.